Hi, Tom. Welcome to this interview. With this interview, we are launching a new series called Living Legends. Uh, and you are the first interviewee of, of this series. I am really honored and happy that you are here with us. So, so thank you. Honored and happy to be asked. Thank you, Maria Elena. This interview is made possible by the VIEW Conference. Uh, the VIEW Conference is the biggest computer graphics conference in Italy. It happens every year in October in a beautiful Turin, in the beautiful Piedmont, uh, which is the place of uh, red wines, Barolo and, and white truffles. We truly hope that Soon, maybe this year, you'll be able to come and, and join us on the kind of retreat that we do uh, every year when we have the conference, when we have a physical edition of the conference. I invite people to visit the website for more information about this year's edition. Again, uh, this year's dates are from the 17th to the 22nd of October in Turin, Italy. All right, so let's start, let's dive in. Let's start from the beginning. Um, why animation? I mean, why did you uh, decide to uh, make animated movies as your preferred form of art? Yeah, I think it's very interesting because we don't, we don't live long lives and we live lives that we start out without a lot of wisdom, you know? It's just passionate as a kid. I loved it and I don't remember a time when I didn't want to be a, an animator or a cartoonist, a draftsman, a comic book artist. And when I was a very small kid, my parents really encouraged me because I loved to draw and, you know, they were uh, doting parents. So they thought I was good. And because they thought I was good, I thought I was good. Who knows if I was good, but I never stopped drawing. And when I um, joined uh, Young Irish Filmmakers, which was a group in my hometown here in Kilkenny, I met some friends like Ross Stewart, who co-directed Wolf Walkers with me. And um, I kind of made a little group of companions and we all were passionate about animation and filmmaking and drawing. And so we just we've been working together ever since. So it's been a clear, linear path for me. You co-founded Cartoon Saloon with uh, Nora Toomey and Paul Young in 1999. Could you elaborate a, a, a little bit about that? I mean, I'm, I was even curious about the name, uh, Cartoon Saloon. I mean, obviously, Saloon makes me think of Westerns. Uh, I know. But yeah, we're <laughs> cowboys. No, I, I, we, we really didn't pick the name carefully again. It's like I ended up in animation because of decisions I made as a young person based on what I loved. We came up with the name, I think Paul and I were, I don't know, having a bottle of wine or something. And we thought that we needed a name to charge an invoice for jobs that we were doing together, you know. And we had a few different ideas, but it was not super serious. But we took that name, Cartoon Saloon. We thought it was cool because it rhymed and that was it. It stuck. It's a very nice name. <laughs> yeah, it's catchy. You remember it. But um, I think it sounds, sometimes I think it sounds a little bit more lighthearted than the movies. Like people might expect a company called Cartoon Saloon to make very funny, cartoony animation. But we make a lot of kind of dramatic features as well. But anyway. 
the next question I want to ask you is about why you chose um, hand-drawn animation. I mean, you were studying animation in the 90s, right around the time that uh, Toy Story came out. So um, um, computer-based techniques were a th the thing, a thing, yeah. and you chose traditional hand-drawn animation. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that. I got into animation to draw and I wanted to learn to draw really well. And I, I thought about doing comics and I never really thought about doing computer animation. It was sort of, it was there as an option, but because I really loved hand-drawn animation and I really fell in love with it more in college, um, I think I just became really motivated to reimagine what, reimagine what hand-drawn animation could do. And like I discovered the work of Richard Williams when I was in college and I discovered a, a documentary um, where he was talking about how hand-drawn animation. Well, he was talking about animation in general at the time because it was a little bit before computers were on the scene. And um, he was uh, talking about how animation hadn't done Rembrandt yet, but it could. And for me, as a young student, that was very inspiring. And I think... A lot of us in the group that made Cartoon Saloon felt the same way, that there was still things to do with hand-drawn animation that hadn't been done yet, and we wanted to keep going. Is there a Cartoon Saloon way of doing things, uh, do you think? I mean, do you, do you school artists in, in your philosophy and, and, and approach to, to animation? I think... Over the last few years have been a period of growth and there has been a lot of people who come to the studio who were already inspired by our work and came to us because they liked what we did. Definitely there's a lot of discussion about the saloon way of doing things and I'm not sure it's really easy to define but there's certainly some approaches and definitely for the movies that I direct there's a visual language that I am more conscious of than I used to be, that I make notes about and try to explain with examples to crew when they join if they didn't work with us before, yeah. Has your uh, personal style uh, evolved and changed from The Secret of Kells to uh, Wolfwalkers? And it, can you please speak to that? Oh, I hope so. I think I've learned a lot. <laughs> so many ways and yeah I think Secret of Kells was in a lot of ways a very you know a very first movie you know and uh, you can sort of see that a little bit when you watch it and I learned so much along the way and became more confident about some ideas that I had and uh, I realized that some ideas I had were limiting um, it's constantly evolving I'd say the biggest change has been the openness to collaboration I, I don't feel threatened in any way by other people bringing ideas and bringing a bit of themselves. In fact, I enjoy it. And I think um, Secret of Kells was very collaborative, but it was so early days that we were very controlling, I think. Whereas now, I think, I hope we're a little bit more open. It, it, it's impressive, uh, I mean, that both of you and, and um, Ross are rather young. Uh, directors and you know it's uh, fantastic to 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 see so many young people working uh, 
on this movie in particular. I'm happy for you to think I'm young. I don't feel very young anymore, so I'll take it as a compliment. Oh, come on. <laughs> I think we started very young. I think I was quite young when I made Secret of Kells. And now I sort of feel that there's some amazing young talents in the studio. And um, what keeps me feeling young is being inspired by the young talents that come into the studio. There's some amazing talents, you know. And um, that's that. I think there's a youthful feeling to the studio. We do have quite a young workforce, but even the people who are my age and older, I think, are trying to keep a, an open mindedness and not to become too fossilized in our way of thinking about things. Yeah, I mean, how do you uh, mentor uh, young artists coming to your studio? A lot of the young artists teach us. I mean, a lot of the times, I like there was a young artist, Sip Saver, who came in and don't know what age she was but she was probably early 20s so she had dedicated herself and was naturally talented in animating birds I mean I learned a lot from her for just as one example but in terms of mentoring I think we try to explain our design philosophy and we try to explain kind of through the culture of the studio what our values are and it's not so much like this is how you do it, but more an osmosis that if you work with us, you start to feel the way we do things and you start to understand our taste and the way we like to work. Wow, that sounds really nice, like building a community, building yeah, a, sense yeah, of it, a sense of belonging. Yeah, we have a really strong policy that we call the no asshole rule. <laughs> and it's it comes from like <laughs> realizing that the industry is full of these big egos who everyone tolerates because they're so talented and we just don't want to work like that we're not interested by that and I mean all respect to those people I think that it's much more pleasant to work with people who are enthusiastic and even if they're not like this rock star talent I think it's just it's how you spend your day you're going to spend your day with these people and if you're going to spend your day with these people and maybe spend more time than you spend with your family sometimes you want them to be emotionally intelligent people or people that are able to think about the team as much as about themselves, you know? Well, it sounds like a wonderful philosophy. Yeah, it sounds for, good. For it's life. Still, yeah, it's a philosophy. It's a philosophy. It's not a, it's a practice. It's not a, it's not a, it's not heaven. You know, you have to constantly work on these things and we're human and we're artists and we're sensitive and, you know, friction can happen. And sometimes there's drama like, it's easy for me to say there's a no asshole rule, but, you know, right now the company's 160 people. I don't know everybody personally. I don't know what little dramas or tensions are playing out, but I do know that if it, if it comes to the surface and we're aware of it, we don't have a lot of tolerance for kind of bullying or anything like that. All right. So now I want to ask you uh, about uh, Wolf Walkers stories of the wolves the wolf people of Ossery and from Kilkenny you know they're from this region so they're um, folklore from this region and we wanted to to speak about the you know empathy which is really important like between it's sad these days that we're constantly um, finding ourselves in camps and binary and them and us and I mean the most powerful example that I could think of in my home country is the fact that we were a colony of England for so long and that we had the English colonial power. And the idea that the English came to deliberately kill all the wolves 
was quite shocking, but also quite interesting. And the idea that we could have a little girl whose ambition is to kill the wolves like her dad. She wants to be like her dad, who's part of the colonizing army. But she ends up changing when she meets a little Irish girl who's basically on the other side, as it were. And their friendship is so powerful that it creates a, a conflict between the English army and her dad and the Irish people. I uh, really loved the, the way uh, the two styles that you use, the style for the town, uh, the style for the forest. What creative sources did you use to create this very unique look and feel? Yeah, I think we're building on like a style that we started back with Secret of Kells and like we're continuing on and there, there were so many influences on that from Celtic art or, you know, Art Nouveau and all kinds of animation, international animation, whether it was Eastern European or Japanese or whatever. So those influences were there. And then what we brought that was new to Wolfwalkers was we looked at the woodblock prints of the time period the way they used to make prints and um, with um, very aggressive mark making. And we use that to represent the, the colonial English point of view, the world of the town to make it feel like a cage. And then we went in the other direction as far as we could into really loose watercolors and sketchy pencil lines for the forest. And to show that Animation, hand-drawn animation can be really expressive like that. Like it's not just what you draw, but how you draw it that can give an impression of how do you, you want the audience to feel, you know. The, the way you're using visual storytelling, I mean how you're creating this uh, symbols. For example, Mev is the shape of her face is is it could be an apple, it could be a heart. It could be a leaf. The town yeah. is all geometric and very uh, gray colors. Uh, the the space of nature and the forest it seems to be like the space the space of the imagination, the space of creation. For me, the the point of it is to watch it. It's a, an experience like music, you know, visual language is a language. And when I try and translate it into English, which I've been doing a lot of interviews, it never really sums everything up. And it is interesting to talk about it, but it is more something that comes from the artist's hand and from the artist working on it. So if the if the background is is a scary moment and everything is harsh, the artist drawing it has that in mind as they draw it and they feel it and, and how they feel and how expressive they are comes across on the screen. You know, so much of it can be talked about and codified and but I'd say a good 50% of it comes from the expressiveness of the artist themselves. And uh, that's most of my job as a director is to... Um, to try to encourage the artist to understand what's happening in the story at that moment and come up with ways to show that visually. So like you say, you know, you design the characters for the forest to be scratchy and rough and for them to move um, very organically and very fluidly. And then they think about the people in the town to be quite stiff and regimented and all those, all those ideas for contrast are all kind of cooked in. But then there's something that happens when a team gets together 
and when they're actually making the art that you can't pre-program or talk about. You just have to do it. It's part of the process of making it, you know. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, what kind of animation processes you use to create some of this sketchy outlines and this, you know, the, the soft rim lighting around uh, the characters? And we were talking about the, well, let, actually, this is interesting. Yeah, we were these talking are the woodblock prints that I was talking about. Yeah. And these, and what, if you can see my screen now, these are some of those woodblock prints from the time that inspired the style of the town. But um, yeah, you can see here the characters are more geometric. The town characters are more geometric. And the characters from the forest are more kind of curvy and organic and sketchy. And then, uh, yeah, the animation process was really deliberately um, designed so that the people in the town, the final line artists or the cleanup artists would draw with a uh, like a hard kind of woodblock style line on the characters in the town. But if they were drawing the characters in the forest, they used like a pencil, like a very soft pencil. And if the characters were like angry, the lines could be angry and jumping off them. And another thing that we did, um, let me show you, I have a little uh, video of the animation process. This is the wolf vision, but yeah, here, if I show you this, you can see that there was different styles for different scenes. So the artists had to sort of think what was going on. This final pencil stage, the cleanup stage, was more important than usual, because usually that's just a, ch a chance to check is everything consistent and on model. But in this pipeline, it was really important stage and we, thought about it more like illustrators. So you can see like in this scene, when we go from the key animation to this, we keep a lot of roughness at this stage. We, we allow the underdrawing to show through, the sketchy underdrawing and the construction lines and everything. So it kind of matches the background. And then when it goes into ink and paint, they paint outside the lines. So it's a little bit like watercolor spreading, like, because these are painted with watercolor paints, the backgrounds. So we wanted to make the, the characters in the forest look like the backgrounds and to feel like watercolors too. But yeah, it was yes. a mixture, a mixture of techniques. Like, for example, all these lines on May, at the start, we were drawing these by hand and it took a long time. But then the ink and paint artists, um, supervisor Helga Bjarnadotter, she found a way to make a, a, a texture with line work but then just apply it in the computer so we didn't have to draw it over and over again so there's some little tricks like that to help make the characters fit the background you know but you can see it's basically just really loose soft pencil lines that give the feeling that it's not a fully cleaned up drawing you can we leave all the construction lines there you know even in the final color and then yeah. in this scene, you can see the difference. Like in this scene at the, at the end, the townspeople, the woodcutters are from the town, so they have a really hard black line on them. But Maeve and Robin are more sketchy, more scratchy, you see. Maybe it's subtle, but for us, it was, <laughs> it was part of the storytelling. Um, 
reading a book at the moment called The Spell of the Sensuous. And it talks about how language is always grappling with this idea of synesthesia. We, we mix up our senses in language because language isn't capable of explaining exactly how things feel. So we talk about warm colors, you know, or we talk about cold colors, or we talk about loud colors. And it's weird because loud describes a sound, a volume, but we know what we mean when we say a loud color, you know, so... It's a it's a trick a trick of the language to talk about these things. I was um, really enchanted and and loved very much the symbols that you were using in the forest. Uh, a lot of circles, a lot of semicircles. The circle and the cave uh, was there a special meaning to to those uh, uh, images. Um, yeah, it's hard to know. Like, I mean, a lot of I have tattoos like that as well. The cup and ring markings that we find on stones in in Ireland and Scotland from the pre-Celtic times, they seem to be from a a goddess period, and they seem to be like circles within circles. Seems to be really holy. Maybe it's some kind of goddess, like a womb type. Uh, I don't know really, but we're just drawing on the on the, sim the pictograms and the symbols from that pre-Celtic time and then using them as a, a visual language of how we tell the story. So for us, what it means um, when we use the circles is things are centered and, and things are, are safe and things are good. So when Robin and Maeve are happy in the forest, we would use circles and stuff much more than um, like here, like much more than if we're in the town and then we're, we're using angles and perspective and stuff to make everything seem, um, yeah, like this more op oppressive, you know. Mm -hmm. but, but the shapes are, the shape, the, the meaning of the, of the shapes and the carvings from that, those ancient times, I guess we lost them because it wasn't a, wasn't a written tradition, but we just take them as a starting point for inspiration for, for our own visual language. In a lot of philosophy, the, the circle is uh, a symbol of uh, perfection. It's interesting to me that uh, the space of the forest, the space of nature, is uh, the space of mythology. I mean, to me, mm. uh, Mev, uh, and 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 her mom looked very archetypal and like mm. the embodiment of nature. A sort of non-dual, feminine, pre pre Christian even um, way of seeing the world as a mother, kind of you know. I think for me that's where I the cup and ring. It's not just a circle, but it's circles within circles, like on my tattoos and stuff. You you see them in different. I've seen them interesting in Native American rock art as well. And I don't know, maybe they were sun worshippers. But anyway, yeah, like you say, it has a kind of resonance for us. And when you see something contained, it's it's like life is a circle that widens rather than a line that you go along. It's a it's a non it's a always complete shape. It's not a shape that has tension. Could you talk about the transformation uh, between human beings into wolves and, and wolves into human beings, the process that you are representing in, in the movie. It's really primal. I think some of the earliest art represented like cave paintings or the lion man that they found 
Um, it's like uh, are humans and animals um, intermingling. I think it's the Cree people in North America talk about a time before, um, you know, these times that we live in when man and animals could be each other and could pass in and out of each other's forms. And there was this kind of concept of like a, a, a kinship or a, an equalness between man and animals. We saw ourselves as animals. We didn't see ourselves as separate from them or above them or with dominion over them. We have power, that's true. And we can kill them or, or mistreat them. But the big question is, should we? Or um, what does it do to us when we behave that way to them? Because this interconnectedness between ourselves and the more than human species that we share the biosphere with is um, more profound than we realize. And I think we lose a lot more than just the species when we drive it to extinction. We lose a part of ourselves as well. And there's a connection between humans and animals that can't be fully explained because as you say, it's primordial. Like it's a echo of who we were and who we might be. I mean, is that what links human beings to a divine space? There's different religions and different ways of looking at things. And um, it seems to me that the indigenous worldview or the, the worldview that seems um, consistent all over the world amongst animals as like a homo sapien is this connection with nature and nature worship and a sense of the divine in nature and a sense of um, loss whenever nature is destroyed. We know there's something profoundly sad about the loss of wilderness and we feel I think on a like I think there's a feeling in the culture that we are we're losing something when we're losing nature you know but it's scary times I I, I feel like that's obvious and that everybody feels that way but maybe I'm wrong because I don't know if we're um, capable of course correcting at this stage but I just think there's this like profound loss in people and I think that the sense of the divine in nature and in ourselves is something that we're craving and it's going to need to be more than just a, a secular awakening to the needs of the ecosystem it's going to have to be a spiritual kind of change of heart like the world is going to in general have to stop looking at nature as a commodity and start seeing it like you say as a as part of our shared consciousness or whatever. And that that kind of waking up is hard, you know, that's 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 painful. Um, and people are probably turning away from it rather than facing it, but it's gonna smack us in the face again and again until we wake up to it, I think. Can I just recommend that I talk about these things all the time, but these ideas are not like wholly my own. And if people are interested in that sort of thing, I really recommend reading like uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer or The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram or these kind of books, because it's a whole way of thinking about spirituality and environmental uh, philosophy and the crisis that we're in at the moment that I think you know if I have any platform that's what I want to do with it is ask people to look at those connections more deeply. I want to ask you about the, the uh, echoes I see in uh, your work in particular in Wolfwalkers 
vehicles I see of uh, Takahata's and Miyazaki's energy and also uh, certain echoes of um, their environmental themes, uh, in, in, in particular to the tales of King Princess Kaguya and Pompoko for Takahata and uh, Princess Mononoke for um, Miyazaki. I came late to Ghibli's work. I think I was already in my like early 20s when I discovered it. I wished I'd seen it as a kid. So my response to it was more like an adult discovering this stuff. So those themes were what drew me in. But those were always movies that, you know, when my son was young, he could watch as well. So I think that in that spirit that we, we want to make movies that are speaking to young people as well about themes that seem kind of deep or profound or adult. That's what we have in common. Um, and that consciousness that if you're telling a story like this to young people, that there's a responsibility to speak to, you know, some of these deeper themes that are going to affect them long after we're gone. So I think there's a kinship there. You know, like we, we have the same... Um, philosophies in a lot of ways but we try not to copy too much I mean I don't want to copy Ghibli I don't want to copy Disney I want to be inspired by them and, and learn from them but kind of do our own thing too you know I think it's been running through our work since uh, Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea that there's something about preserving um, the truth and the wisdom that's in these old stories by keeping on telling them. And whether the magic and the shamanistic and all those kind of more esoteric um, ideas about storytelling um, come true or not, you're still part of that um, lineage. You're still part of that tradition where you take the story from a generation or two before tell it again for the modern generation and then the modern generation hopefully will take it and tell it to the next so you're just in the middle of it and the the bigger ideas around it you can't you have to trust that the story encapsulates those ideas so that you don't need like a an essay to go with the story to explain it and that's what will keep it alive it has to be living you know it has to be vernacular it has to be something that resonates with a modern audience or will be forgotten so that's the job of the storyteller to take the wisdom that they see in these old stories and retell it for a modern audience in a way that's useful for them so that they take that story and pass it forward you know you were telling me before about uh, your uh, grandchild uh, being able to transform, mm -hmm. to, to imagine that she's a, that she's an animal, or to play with inanimate objects as mm. if they were living things. Yeah, uh, kids behave like creative artists mm. in the sense that uh, they uh, imagine the reality of the imagination mm. to be to be real. Isn't there something very special in animation, I think, that it speaks in that language of dreams in that way. It made me think about Picasso there as well when he said, I can't remember if the quote is absolutely exactly this, but he took him his whole life to learn to see like a child again. And I and I think that's what we're always looking for, that that, that return to that way of seeing the world in a kind of animistic way where everything has a life to it. The guides are two young girls uh, leading us into this beautiful space. And 
away from that space of, I mean, I guess that you have the, the, the space of adults, boring, uh, gray, uh, oppressed <laughs> adults, and into the space of, 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 of storytelling, the imagination, art, which is infinite. And it's also fear, you know, you're moving from a place of fear, because a lot of our adult society, we put these restrictions on ourselves out of fear, you know. And if you look at a small child, they're, they don't fear and you nearly have to teach them fear, which is a sad <laughs> thing in some ways, you know. I really think this is your masterpiece. It's, it's perfect. It's, it's uh, I like perfect equilibrium. It's perfection. It's like the circle. Wow. I, I no, no. mean, it's amazing to me. I don't, I didn't feel that. Maybe it's because it's a, such a collaboration with Ross and I don't know. It's interesting. I love hearing that, of course, but it's so interesting for me because I never, I never felt that. I had a sense of surety about Song of the Sea. I felt this is really the movie I wanted to make. And I felt like I don't care if people don't like it because this is really truthful. But with Wolfwalkers, I think we were so open to input from our team and our crew and Ross and I that I think we never had that sense of like, now it's perfect. We always thought it could we could do more, but we have to stop. So it's lovely to hear that you think we found something in that process, because it's a very generous process, I think, where you're always ready to listen to somebody else and change it again. And, and the only thing that stopped us continuing to work on it was time we had to stop you know the running with the wolves sequence is very very beautiful just mm. just just gorgeous right and um, when when mev tells uh robin you have to forget everything you know yeah don't see the world through your eyes see the world through your senses you can touch the earth with your paws and this is something that resonates a lot to women because obviously women mm. are constantly told that they think through their bodies. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with me, you know, because we've been caught up in all the publicity and everything and you start to forget. And, and when you answer the same questions over and over, you start to lose the real meaning of why you did things. So it's really nice to hear you just talk like that because it makes me uh, remember, you know, more deeply what we were trying to do. And I love to hear that there's a personal resonance for you um, about the feminine, which is fascinating to me because that's not my lived experience. And yet I think that's the, the state of being that we all um, aspire back to. And it is very interesting that there's a notion that it's not masculine to be in your body or that men don't live in their body. I think those kind of ideas, I wonder how much of them are cultural and how much of them are true. It's such an interesting conversation. Uh, representation is important. And uh, I, in Wolf Walkers, the two protagonists are young girls. Why do you think it's important to portray women in strong roles and in positive roles? It's important on so many levels. I think we've had like a hundred years of very male-centric cinema. So we need about a hundred years of more balanced feminine-centric cinema to, to kind of catch up to equality, you know. But I mean, it doesn't work like that. But I think it's important. I think when I see my little granddaughter who's three years old and she sees, you know, whether it's Moana or 
Frozen, or she loves wolf walkers too. You know, when they see a, a, a girl who's allowed to be her whole self and not just one aspect of herself, and that the, she's the focus of the story and that the world is seen through her eyes and that that's valid, I think that's lovely. You know, I think that's important. And, you know, you asked earlier about what power to give a, a child. And I think you can give them power by giving them models like that. You know, you look at Batman and think, oh, I could be Batman. But, you know, what if you could see something more positive than a revenge-focused, testosterone-fueled superhero? And that's what we're starting to see with these female characters. And so I'm happy about that. In Robin, uh, I... <laughs> when she stands up to the Lord Commander, uh, obviously, uh, she, uh, to me, she was echoing Antigone, right? Uh, uh, oh, wow, up, yeah. Standing up to her uncle for the pagan laws of the gods to, mm -hmm. uh, to observe the, the, the laws yeah, of, of the gods and oral tradition in opposition to the laws of human beings. So, yeah, 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 it's interesting to me to see it. And we called her Robin Goodfellow, and that was the, you know, the Puck character in Midsummer Night's Dream, but also speaks to a, an English folk tradition of paganism and fairies that it's important to remember existed too. Can you tell us anything about what is next for you and what is next for Cartoon Saloon? Well, me personally, uh, right now, I'm um, kind of working as the connective tissue creatively between the different artists in the studio because they're all working from home. And so what I try to do is have regular conferences with the different people in different departments on different productions and just make sure that something I might have learned gets communicated or if I realize that they might need help from somebody on another production, to just try and be that sort of uh, therapist in the middle between them all to make sure that all the productions benefit from the wisdom that's all scattered amongst everybody working from home. We don't have that workshop anymore. We don't have that place, that atelier, where everybody comes together. So I'm trying to facilitate that. I'm personally just working on my own drawing skills. I'm kind of getting back to life drawing, going, putting myself back to college, really, because I feel like when I'm directing, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't, I, I spend more time as a director on soft skills uh, than hard skills, and uh, I like to catch up on my hard skills when I can. And uh, the studio is busy, you know. That's that's what's amazing. Like uh, Nora Toomey, my partner, business partner, is is making uh, My Father's Dragon, which is a, a lovely film for Netflix. We're making a big series for Apple that's based on mythology, all kinds of mythology. We're making a, a feature film by Puff and Rock, which deals in a kind of gentle way with climate change for small kids. Um, yeah, the studio is really busy, so my, my, my job is just connecting everything up for a while. When you say that you're uh, studying again, drawing again, I mean, I so much admire that in you, that, that, that you keep the sense, a childlike sense that you don't know it all, that you have not reached mm. perfection, sure, that you want sure. that sense of curiosity and, oh, and exploration. Sure. Right, that you yeah, want to yeah. learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
there's nothing um there's there's i think the lovely thing about art is you're never done you know yeah i remember years ago glenn Keane visited our school our, our animation school in dublin and uh, he talked about you know you work really hard and then you think you've got somewhere and then you stay there on like a plateau and then you realize oh there's somewhere more to go and that seems to never end it just seems to keep going um which is lovely you, you would take many lifetimes i think to get bored i do have one last question to ask you what advice would you give to young directors, young filmmakers out there, and in particular, women uh, who dream of becoming directors? Yeah, I think it's the same I would give to whether it was a, a, <laughs> Anybody. a boy or a girl. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm happy to see there's more women and we need those voices, but it's it's ultimately the same Um your, your conference is called VIEW and something that's been important for me all my life has been vision and having a vision and being able to picture where you want to be. And I think for young women to see other women like Nora directing is great. For girls to see characters on screen that represent them is great because it allows them to envision themselves doing it. But at the end of the day, the job is the job, whether you're male or female or what your background or particular <laughs> identity is. And the job is people, you know, the job is communication. It's not software. It's not even the hard skills of drawing, which are all a benefit. But if you're a director, ultimately what you're doing is communicating your vision with whatever tools you have. And you need to have emotional intelligence and you need to have patience and you need to have a certain amount of people skills or you won't be able to get your team to communicate your vision well thank you thank you Thanks so much for listening to this episode of our podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. It would be amazing if you could subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the VIEW conference on all social media. We have some amazing sessions coming up and we hope to see you all there.